Welcome to Armchair Generals, a podcast about geopolitics, international relations, America's place in the world, and all things we find interesting. I'm Andrew, and with me as always in the armchair is my buddy Garrett. Yeah, what's what's going on? What have you been what have you been reading, man? What have you looked at? The summers are usually slow, or they used to be slow, but this year in particular, there's a plethora of things to go over. And three things I would love to touch on. You know, what's going on in Ukraine, Pelosi's trip to to Taiwan and the effects geopolitical and strategic, and the targeted killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul. I have heard Zawahiri. I've heard about a dozen pronunciations this week. Uh, I probably got it wrong. I have no sense of phonetics. So, uh, but yeah, August traditionally is the doldrums of summer, but not in 2022. It has been a busy, busy season of news. Haven't researched the subject to the level of detail. I don't think the details have come out yet because I don't think we've seen a, a Taliban response, which will be particularly uh, enlightening, I think. Seems to be he was he was killed on his deck after morning prayers by the uh, the flying uh, sushi knife. Yeah, the flying Ginsu, as I've heard the U.S. military calls the kinetic hellfire, which I think kinetic hellfire excellent band name. I I was actually agreeing with that, and I they used two, and then just some of the photos I saw in the article I read, it looked like there was damage to the deck. But nothing else. So it, it, it does seem to be black and explosive. This was a new technology to me. I had not heard about, as you probably know, the Hellfire developed as a helicopter-borne anti-tank armament for uh, use against the Soviet army. And um, obviously has seen great and effective use on uh, Reaper drones uh, during the War on Terror. But this has only been used apparently four times, uh, is what I was reading. And it's a 100 pound or about 49 kilogram, just a tungsten warhead with retractable blades. It's absolutely medieval. Absolutely. And I, I read that they used it previously, I believe, in Syria. And it must be surprising. You know, uh, you could turn around and hear a a loud thump or something, and there's no explosion. So it's just a piece of metal falling from, from the heavens uh, on and smiting somebody. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is our viewers wouldn't be surprised about drone strikes. It's, it's common from the U.S. government now. Our presence in this region is more limited than it historically has been. We don't have takeoff points in Kabul. So in time, if the information comes out, it'll be intriguing to see what platform was actually used where they took off from. Yeah, it's, I guess, possible that it was sea launched, right, from a from a carrier in the, in the Gulf. You're right, it's, you know, where would the nearest base be, but probably Saudi, right? Or maybe is there, are there, do we have facilities in, I guess, Qatar would be marginally closer, or, uh, or if there's any facility that we have in, um, in Kuwait, but then you're transiting over Iranian airspace, right? So where... It's complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated, especially when you're doing a targeted strike to eliminate an individual target. You have to consider like how the airspace you're transiting, how are they going to potentially view the fact that you violated their national airspace to kill somebody in another country? 
yeah, it's very intriguing um, because, as you say, we have no residual presence left in Afghanistan. And it's interesting to consider how does the Taliban feel like they give give this guy sanctuary? They say, of you know, come back, come to Kabul, give him an apartment uh, to this figure that has been in hiding, and then you know, months if not weeks, right, that he's in country before the Americans and take care of business. I'm going to be intrigued because what little information I, I've read states that the next two kind of most uh, popular and highest ranking Al-Qaeda members are in Iran. And interestingly, they kind of harbors them, but it's also not the safest place for them. The Israelis, from what I've, I've read, have taken out a few of these in, in, in Tehran even. I, I'm intrigued to hear what the Taliban comes out with. Uh, given that harboring terrorist organizations is specifically against the agreement they signed, right? the main stipulation in this agreement, and then how the internal politics, I think we, we often think of the, the Taliban as a monolith, just like all societies and political groupings, it's not. And there are divergent political thoughts within the Taliban. Sure. Yeah, no, there's um, there are hardliners and there are more reform elements, as you say, just like in any, you know, political ideology. And you're right. It is interesting. Do they let it lie because to to complain vocally about the violation of their sovereignty would open them up for criticism for violating the terms of the the pullout agreement? I I agree. I think. There are some interesting political levers right now, given that they've been pushing to unfreeze the billions of dollars uh, that their central bank had in their possession Mm -hmm. uh, that have been frozen by the U.S. What it does bring up to me is, are we going to kind of pick up our drone strike program? And it's interesting because you don't get that level of accuracy without detailed and most likely long-term coordination and collection of intelligence, right? They knew his routine to the degree that they had a drone overhead when he finished morning prayers and walked out on the deck by himself. It is clear that the U.S. has deep intelligence gathering capabilities inside of Afghanistan right now. That's what it suggests. And not just signals intelligence and not just overhead surveillance, but ground level human intel. And I think rightly, it's rightly so. We've been there for 21 years. uh, And the one area that we nominally actually controlled for those 21 years, imagine all the military personnel who didn't leave. I have a funny feeling a lot of them were not, you know, they're not happy the Taliban's there either. And I'm sure that there's uh, relationships amongst translators and whatnot that uh, getting information out is much easier now than it was in 2001, 2002. So on to our next topic, Ukraine. You know, everyone's talking about HIMARS. Everyone's talking about multiple, multiple launch rocket systems. The HIMARS and, you know, the predecessor of the MLRS seem to be not just technologically superior, but significantly better military devices. And there's no equivalent in the Russian armed forces, from what I can tell. They have medium, short to medium ballistic missiles. They have their hyper air-launched hypersonic missiles. 
but they don't have anything like this that can shoot and scoot. It really seems to have thrown a wrench in the Soviet doctrine of large stockpiles of ammunition, moving materials on rail, while also killing a few generals, from what I can read. We This is a topic we are very much in agreement on. It is clearly very difficult for the Russian army to adapt to changing circumstances. We can get pretty deep into the weeds on Russian tactical doctrine and a lack of a functioning NCO corps and a lack of an officer corps that is trained to take initiative on the battlefield and adapt and overcome circumstances, which is, you know, NATO playbook 101. And that's not obviously the way the Russian army works. They are a conscript army without a functioning NCO corps with officers who are tied to the battle plans of those above them. It all almost in some respects is reflective of a, of a World War I attitude where it's, you know, maneuver at scale, large battle elements engaged with each other. And that's just not the battle space that exists in Ukraine. The Ukrainian army is too small, but they've also undergone these reforms and they're also using technologically superior firepower. And I think you're absolutely right when you point out that the ability for the Ukrainian army to deploy HIMARS, which are highly accurate, medium range, and mobile, to target uh, Russian ammo dumps, it's a real example of a an army adapting to the circumstances. The Russian army, clearly, they did not blitzkrieg to Kiev. They did not crush the Ukrainian government and the country did not collapse inside of a week, which was obviously the initial plan. So now we're in this stage where the Russians said, well, we're going to use our material advantage and just grind the Ukrainian front line. And we can just take our time and bombard and bombard and bombard. And then once there's literally nothing left, the Ukrainians will leave because there's nothing left to defend and we'll just come in and plant our flag on top of the ashes. The one kind of siege tactic that that worked for them in World War II, which is just hurl bodies at a problem, hurl artillery at a problem. I, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting, the bodies they are throwing at this. You know, I, I read there's, you know, a significant Chechen presence. It doesn't seem to be to the point where Putin is willing to put the children of, you know, Moscovites into, into the front lines. There's been no general mobilization. I wonder, you know, is there going to be a manpower issue here? They're getting chewed up. Some of the numbers I saw, you know, it's casualty figures are in the you know, at minimum in the tens of thousands. And at a certain point, you know, a, a one-week operational pause is probably not sufficient if you have to hold this level of territory. Right. So the, the conventional wisdom is time is on Russia's side. Okay, as far as that goes, maybe that's true. They can continue to grind at uh, Ukraine's east. And the thought is when winter comes, Putin will have maximum leverage over Europe. And that is really going to degrade the Ukrainian's ability to fight because Germany, to a lesser extent, France 
and Italy, and then in even lesser extent, Britain and Spain will be less inclined to offer support in significant quantity because they don't want the gas taps turned off. I'm of the opinion that the Greens, which control the German energy ministry and the German foreign ministry, and are very hesitant to trust Vladimir Putin's government, are likely not to fall for that. Germany and the rest of Europe are probably, if, if they have any kind of strategic vision, are very quickly pivoting away from Russia as a supply, an energy supplier, which means that Putin has limited leverage now and his position is only going to weaken over time. I think we've already seen a significant change in European energy policy, right? Um, I believe they, maybe everyone but Hungary and, and, and a couple who got exceptions, have dropped Russian coal. I know gas, I think, has been decreased by 50%, and they're looking to completely terminate um, gas at some point in the near future. Uh, Nord Stream 1 was down for repairs. And the turbine, to one of the turbines for it that Canada shipped is sitting in Germany. And the Russians haven't taken it back yet. Nord Stream 2, while completely operational, was never approved and put online. The West is significantly changing its energy sourcing. The U.S. exported a very significant amount of liquefied natural gas to, to Western Europe. And most of that was historically would go to Southeast Asia. And the Europeans were willing to pay up for it to the point where the, the American energy companies paid the breakage for the contracts they had in place for their other customers to ship that gas to Europe. So I think that decision has been made. There's no going back. If Russia thinks that Europe is going to come back and let them have almost a monopoly on energy supply again and hold this over them, that Band-Aid has been pulled off. Putin doesn't have to deal with the level of discontent that most democracies would have to deal with. He controls all the organs of the government as well as the information flow. The Ukrainians must be sitting there and thinking... They're going to have casualties, but the goal is just have to make the Russians take more because that's the only thing that's going to put any political pressure on the Russians, Russian government. Yeah, it's a battle of attrition in the east of Ukraine, for sure. What Ukraine's capacity to inflict damage on the Russian army, they have pulled divisions from the Russian Far East. They've pulled those troops west and are, and are redeploying lots of reserve divisions, you're right to say there is no general mobilization. And the question remains, if there isn't ever a general mobilization, if draft drafts are not extended to middle-class Russians, um, the Russians that are sort of make up the, the base of support for the Putin government, does the level of discontent ever rise to the point where the Russian government has to do something to prevent a worse outcome for them domestically. It's an open question. They can continue to be ground up. It's clearly uh, not a good situation for them. They're not winning. They don't look like they may. They may not ever win. 
they but they could reach a stalemate and i think that is a bad outcome i think a stalemate is is a is a net negative for global security and the west and obviously ukraine this is an opportunity to degrade the capacity of russia to act maliciously in the world and it's a once maybe in a generation opportunity to degrade their capacity irrevocably next spring's fighting season i think is a rosier outlook for ukraine than for russia but it's totally possible that the opposite happens the western alliance fractures some members decide that they don't want to put up with the economic pain anymore or they're just simply not going to continue to spend money to support ukraine which is short-sighted as you know the ukraine has the lowest per capita income of any country in Europe. So a Marshall Plan for Ukraine could pay dividends in the trillions of dollars to the rest of the European economy to just bring them up to the same level of income per capita as Romania. What do you think about this? From the Ukrainians' perspective, they had Soviet material, some domestic, some you know inherited. But through this process, not only are they going to have a large land army that's being trained because all the men were kept. I haven't read any precise figures, but I assume many of those individuals are going through basic training right now, and they're being equipped with modern Western weaponry and being taught Western tactics. So if the whole concept was to push NATO further away uh, get rid of the supposed Nazis in the Ukraine. What have they really? What have the Russians done? And at some point, I think the Russian people are going to look at this and have to say whether or not they like Putin. This was the wrong call. Finland and Sweden have joined NATO. The uh, Ukrainians are better armed, better trained, and more motivated than they were prior to the invasion. Russia is in a strategically weaker position with a longer border against their avowed enemy. Not just a longer border, a border that's twice as long as it was before the start of this conflict. Finland alone has something like an 800-mile border with, with Russia. Um, so the ascension of Finland and Sweden to NATO is a huge strategic setback. No matter what else happens in Ukraine, this has been an unmitigated disaster for Russia strategically, and I don't see them being able to salvage any kind of success on the battlefield or otherwise. The next six months, seven months, will be very interesting. I, I can't imagine this situation. You've locked up basically the cream of your military, they're fighting within 20 miles of your border, and they're being ground down. At some point, something's going to give. And so, you know, we talked about Afghanistan. We talked about Ukraine, but uh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a Friday if we didn't talk about Pelosi's trip to 
to Taiwan. There was a lot of hubbub around this. Would she go? Would she not? There were, seemed to be certain various opinions within the Biden administration, the Department of Defense. At the end of the day, she's gone. She's left. And what's happened now? Mainland China has uh, decided to open up military exercises around Taiwan. And it not surprising in my mind that you, they had to do something, especially in, I don't want to call it an election cycle, but a year of strategic importance for Xi Jinping. And uh, just wanted to kick it off. What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting to keep your eye on this over, over the short term. But I think over the long term, if we are now on a road to an inevitable conflict with China in, in the East China Sea, the historians may point to this trip as the starting gun of that conflict. So now the Biden administration has to manage this, this crisis. Yeah. And as you say, the, the Xi Jinping, it's a, a very important year for him, right? He's a controversial third term as party leader. And he now probably has six years remaining where he can achieve his dream of total reunification, which will put him in the pantheon of Chinese leaders along with uh, Mao. And I believe that is his personal ambition. No, I, I agree. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. I mean, markets moved because of this, and and we'll see. I mean, just strategically speaking, there was a warming, you know, in the in the two thousands when the Kuomintang was was in power. The KMT is in opposition, and you have a younger, more independent-minded electorate. You know, it's, it's a country of 22 million people, but uh, the opposition has, you know, won significantly in the, in the last election. So I wonder what the average Taiwanese person is thinking. And I've read kind of, this is almost business as usual. It's a little more uh, flagrant, but this is what they've been dealing with for years now is mainland aggression, that they are a kind of a breakaway province and they will be brought to heel. But I just, it'll be interesting. Taking an island is not going to be easy. Like there's, there's a lot of issues with it. And uh, look at Russia. They, they could roll across their, use the same train tracks and they're having problems going 90 miles over a strait with inclement weather off a part of your country with no deep water ports uh, isn't going to be easy. And, and Taiwan's been hardening themselves for decades. I, I have a feeling military sales to Taiwan are going to go up somewhat significantly in the very near future. We're in radical agreement on this point. I think that, that China has to be, the genie is out of the box. Taiwan is nominally independent and does not appear to be engaged in a process anywhere close to reunification with mainland China. The population is young, they're dynamic economically, dynamic culturally. This seems like we are approaching a stage where the status quo can't hold for reasons both internal to Chinese politics and external globally 
Taiwan has an independent identity and independent political culture. Um, they don't appear to be moving closer or in parallel. And China, China's hardline policies in Hong Kong, China's increasingly muscular posture in the South China Sea, the way it treats you know, near abroad neighbors like the Philippines, like Vietnam, like India, it really, if you're sitting in Taipei, you've got to say, hmm, is this the, is this, can we coexist with the Chinese Communist Party in a one country, two systems setup? And it, I think the Xi regime has demonstrated that that is not possible. And they've demonstrated it in Hong Kong, most obviously, that, that if Taipei pursued a policy of reunification, um, that that would likely result in the erosion of democratic traditions and norms within Taiwan over a relatively short period. You know, Hong Kong is, was only handed back in 97. So within with less than it was 25 years, to, uh, they that all of the democratic institutions and norms which Hong, Hong Kongers enjoyed until 1997 under colonial rule, such as they were, have, have nearly disappeared. So it's, it's an interesting period. And that doesn't even get into the, the fact that the Chinese military has no operational experience of combined arms warfare. It has no naval combat experience at all and very little ground combat experience. The last time they were operationally engaged at scale was the Korean War. And then the, the uh, Chinese-Vietnamese conflict in the 70s, which was a border skirmish. So combined arms is difficult for the best trained armies in the world under the best circumstances. So does a cross-strait invasion, could it be successful? Maybe, but maybe not. And the legitimacy of the government would be put at risk in such a gamble. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you wonder for a long time, I mean, I remember years and years, they, the approach from, from the Chinese to Taipei was, you know, let's go, let's, let's go with the Hong Kong model. And at the time that didn't seem like a bad option. It was increasing trade. There was tourism to Taipei. There was uh, significant uh, kind of cultural dialogue. There was an agreement that we were one people, um, kind of the two systems approach. But very rapidly, that's gone away. And I don't know enough to say if that is due to either side or just a, 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 a confluence of events from both parties at the same time, where you had an upswing in kind of um, an independent identity from the Taiwanese. You had generations that had not, you had grown up in potentially three, two, two to three generations removed from being from mainland China, um, being under military dictatorship in Taiwan, um, moving into a liberal democracy. And you have, you got to the point where you had enough of the electorate young electorate 
that had never dealt with any of, of that prior, uh, prior situations and identified completely as an independent group. And at the same time, you had an upswelling in nationalism from the mainland Chinese government, uh, an increase in their presence on the world stage, and uh, a belief that they, they needed to control uh, their near abroad. But I, I wonder, I wonder what this is going to, what this is going to turn out to be, because we're not, you know, it's not going to be tomorrow that they invade. It's not going to be like with Russia and the Ukraine and, you know, it seemed to happen very quickly. This would need to be planned out well in advance. And I don't know if it's going to be able to happen in six years. So the question becomes, if it's not in six years, if it's not in two years, when is it? And does it ever happen? Or at a certain point, is there a new, uh, a new understanding? If, if the US and China get in more conflict, is there a point in time where we say, okay, the one China policy has run its course and we have a new agreement? Yeah, you raise an interesting point, which is we in the United States and our global partners could count on a certain level of continuity from US administration to US administration. And I no longer think that's the case. So it raises the question of our longstanding policies like the strategic ambiguity around Taiwan, can they be counted on? Can they be assumed to still be in place between one administration and the next? The scenario you lay out where there's a full-scale invasion Perhaps that is unlikely in, in a six-year time frame, but I believe Xi only has six more years. I think by the mid-2030s, this will have resolved one way or the other. Either China accepts the status quo because the government has changed, or um, there is some military or diplomatic change to the status quo uh, at the behest of, of Xi Jinping himself, which could be you know, a blockade of the island. And then it really is in our court. Do we escalate by trying to break the blockade or, or not? And if not, then does that put into question our commitment to the region? We're, we're headed for a bumpy, I think, rest of the decade in, in Asia. And I would one thing I would like to point out is that we speak about the U.S. and yes, we would probably be the, the major contributor to the defense of Taiwan through sales of arms and 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 whatnot. But we're seeing our allies in the Asia Pacific region, the Indo Pacific region. They're they're coming together. I mean, through the Quad, but Japan in particular, South Korea, Australia. I think we're going to see them be more forceful on the world stage, almost maybe not by choice, but by by happenstance. And they're going to be forced to be because the U.S. is not going to solve every problem. If Japan wants to to control their near abroad themselves and protect themselves, I think we're going to see a a more nationalistic um, tone, maybe not in the, the style that Abe originally, but as the architect of the Quad, uh, this this has really continued forth and, and grown, this concept uh, 
And I think for what you have, you, you the South Koreans and the Japanese, very strong militarily, advanced economies, and they feel this same threat in a, in a sense. And historically, too, I hope at the end of the day, it's just bellicose rhetoric. Uh, that, like we saw with Pelosi's visit, where there was a lot of don't do it, it would, repercussions will be horrible. And what we got out of it were some live file, fire military exercises. But Taiwan, their, their saving grace is they're an island, but their Achilles heel is that they're also an island. So at the end of the day, um, I'm sure their defense budget and their defense planning strategy is going to be dramatically different over the next two or three years. Thanks for listening to Armchair Generals. We'll be back next week with more.